If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we will be in verse 14. Of course, we'll be in other scriptures as well as we unpack what God has to teach us in this commandment. Let's pray together. Dear Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for giving it to us as instruction. God, I thank you for giving it to us as a mirror to look into, to see our flaws, to see our sins, so that we turn from our sins and fall into your grace. As we recognize once again how gracious and merciful you have been to a sinful people. God, you are good when we're not. God, you are gracious when we don't deserve it. Help us as we look into your word. Be gracious to us by revealing your truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, says this. You shall not commit adultery. There it is. Let's go home. Done. Simple, not difficult, right? So much to unpack here. Especially in the culture that we live in, this is a neglected commandment. This is a stepped-on commandment. And our culture... Today makes everything about sex and sexual immorality. Recently, The Bachelorette, I saw it in a news article. I don't watch the show. But it said, I had sex and Jesus still loves me. Of course, there's one aspect to that. We can say, well, amen, Jesus forgives. He's gracious for any sin. But the way the comment was worded, the way it was framed, the conversation that stemmed from it, that's not what was meant. And we've heard this before, right? What was meant was, I did a sinful act, and it doesn't really matter. I don't care about it. God doesn't care about it. It's really pointless either way. Obedience, fidelity in this area, that doesn't matter. It's washed over. Who cares? Let sin so that grace may abound. I think Paul had something to say about that in Romans chapter 6. Should we sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not. We can be nonchalant about sin. We can be cavalier about the things that God says mattered. When we look at the commandments of God, it's not a to-do list. It's not simply a list of rules. It is the very character of God himself that he has given to us for our good. And so as we look at this commandment, we need to start somewhere else. Because so often in Scripture we see commands, we see things God is teaching us and they're for our good. Sometimes... God in His grace and love for us 
helps us understand the why. Helps us understand the heart behind the command. Don't do this because of this. Don't do this because this is what's happening when you do. And as we unpack the seventh commandment, we need to do so by first looking at the goodness of what God has designed. The goodness of what God has designed. So first and foremost, marriage and sex are good gifts from God. Good gifts from God. We'll discuss four different ways that this, these are good gifts from God. First is this. Sex is God's gift for procreation within a marriage covenant. Sex is God's gift for procreation within a marriage covenant. Read Genesis chapter 2 all the way back at the beginning. Don't worry, that point will come back up. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I'm going to highlight a few different things in this passage. One, taken out of man. A couple things that we need to notice. One, there's a similarity. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. There's a difference as well taken out from me. And right after the difference, there's a therefore. The scholars say we we can't miss the connection there. It's taken out of man. There's a difference there. Therefore, this gift of union is given. This gift of union to bring man and woman back together. To become one flesh once again. Designed in such a way that their union matters. Their union reflects the way they were created. One man, one woman becoming one once again. We could say it's not a union, but it's a reunion. Do we see the beauty in this? Ruling out immediately things like polygamy and homosexuality because of God's design. This is how it's meant to be. But what about this union? What is this union pointing towards? Well, Malachi tells us something that we should have already known from Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 says, Be fruitful and multiply. Well, Adam can't do that by himself. So he needs a helper. A helper suitable for the task. If he's going to fulfill the command of God, God's going to give him what he needs to, com- to fulfill the command. And what he needs is Eve. Malachi discusses this further. Malachi 2, verses 13 through 15. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? 
because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? What's the purpose for this union? What's the purpose for this covenant? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Do this for the purpose of procreation, for creating children. Now, does this mean if a couple is unable to have children that their union is not a union? No. But it's still, that's what that's designed for. That's the natural result from that if the fall didn't happen. It's a godly act because of what it's intended for. Well, early in the church and into the Middle Ages, this act also had kind of a stigma to it. It said, well, it's necessary to produce children, but it's kind of a necessary evil. The evil is counterbalanced by the good-producing children. To borrow the language of Leviticus, it makes people unclean. That was kind of the thought process behind it. In fact, the Catholic Church started instituting holy days where married couples couldn't have sex. By the time of the Reformation, these days totaled 183 days of the year. It was the Reformers and later the Puritans who championed the marriage bed and redeemed it from the stigma it had become. Reading through Song of Solomon or the New, Test- the New Testament, about 1 Corinthians 7, talks about the importance of intimacy, that we were designed for one another. For mutual pleasure in the marriage relationship. So it's for enjoyment within a marriage covenant. A, a big part of even the stigma that's associated a lot is so often when we fall into sin or God saves us from sin, the sin that he saves us from becomes the biggest deal in our life. Like, I I can't go near that. That's ultimately evil, even if there's some good in it. Well, Augustine was, in the early church, kind of the, one of the main figures there, and he was a playboy. Read the Confessions. (laughs) And he details his story. And he's saved from that. And so, he pendulums the other way. And church history followed. A couple other things that we need to reflect on. Marriage reflects Christ and the church. Marriage reflects Christ and the church. If you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Marriage is a special union because it broadcasts to the world Christ's relationship to the church. Says this in Ephesians 5, verse 22 Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. This relates to reading Leviticus, this next part, doesn't it? And she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Marriage reflects the world, Christ and the church. Marriage also creates bonds that might not otherwise be formed. So I just busted on Augustine, but I'm going to say some positive uh, about him as well. This is one interesting thing uh, reading through the city of God. In, uh, so Augustine said this about incest. So often we, we think about the idea of incest in our contemporary context, we think in genetics, biology, those type of terms. As Augustine's wrestling through this in the fourth century, he is thinking, why is this evil? Why shouldn't this take place? And here's what he said. God designed us for relationships. It's good to relate to other people. It's good to have natural bonds with other people. He said it doesn't really make sense, does it, to, to have one person fulfill multiple roles in our life. She's my sister and she's my wife. She's like, wh- he's like, wouldn't it be better if you had one person be your sister and one person be your wife? Then we have more relationships. We have more people that we have deep bonds with that transcend ourselves. Now, whether this is biblical or not, is cool speculation. It makes sense in the grand story of Scripture that God would design it in such a way that we have marriage gives us greater bonds and extends our relationships with other people. But think about this. It's often the best things the most precious gifts that are the most abused. Kevin DeYoung writes this, God's best gifts are those most apt to be twisted and perverted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Once we see the beauty of marriage, how God designed it, things to work, it, start, it starts to give us a picture of the ugliness of adultery and how big of a deal it is in Scripture. We could say it like this, adultery defiles marriage and sex. Adultery defiles marriage and sex. 
First, because adultery is a sin against God and God's created design. In the ancient Near East, the context in which the Old Testament was written, adultery was a crime. But adultery was a crime because if a wife committed adultery or somebody committed adultery with her, you violated my property rights. I own her. That was the mentality. We see something different in the book of, we see something different in Scripture, right? When David sins against Bathsheba and Uriah, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. It's an offense against you and what you've intended. This transcends all, all things around the culture. This is greater. Both parties should be penalized. This is, you can't do it. Is grounded in something higher. It gives value to both men and women by punishing both who break this. It's a sin against God and what God has designed. Next, adultery trades lasting intimacy for momentary pleasure. The marriage union was meant for lasting union. And the creation of children, if God so wills, flowing from the love between husband and wife. There's a natural outcome for the consummating act of marriage. Children in lasting intimacy. When adultery takes place, it trades fleeting passion for lasting intimacy. trades something sacred for something carnal. It trades representing Christ and His church to the world to reliving the spiritual adultery of the Israelites. It trades looking like the, the second Adam, Jesus, but looking more like the first Adam who sinned against God, who traded Momentary pleasure for life in the garden with God. Trading lasting intimacy for momentary pleasure. Next, adultery elevates me over we and self over God. It's not a personal sin. It damages others around us as well. Marital love is sacrificial, giving up individual needs and wants for the sake of another. Parenting is sacrificial, laying down comforts for the good of children. Adultery is selfish. It elevates self while sacrificing the well-being of everyone around us. If our marriage is a beautiful stained glass window that reflects what God is like to the world around us, adultery shatters the glass into pieces and dances upon it. I've seen some of the damage of the act itself. What about the breadth of adultery? It's more than what we initially might think. Adultery is not limited to the act itself, but everything that leads up to the act. 
is more extensive than the act itself. Adultery is taking place in the flirting that takes place, the glances, the things leading up to the act itself. Often it does not take place overnight, but is a process of inappropriate behavior, of entertaining thoughts, of developing emotional dependency on somebody else besides a spouse. So how might we live in such a way as to avoid the allures of this, to guard ourselves against this? Well, one approach is common, a bit controversial in some quarters, is the Billy Graham rule, recently renamed the Mike Pence rule. The Billy Graham rule is a practice According to the official Wikipedia definition, is a practice among some male evangelical Protestant leaders in which they avoid spending time alone with women to whom they are not married. It is named after Billy Graham, a proponent of the practice, although recently has also been named the Mike Pence Rule. It is adopted as a display of integrity, a means of avoiding sexual temptation, to avoid any appearance of doing something considered morally objectionable and to avoid being accused of sexual harassment. Put simply, it's avoiding unwise relationships, putting guards in place. There's a story about John MacArthur. John MacArthur was driving and he passed uh, some tennis courts And on those tennis courts, he saw his youth pastor uh, who kind of worked under him and one of the deacon's wives. Didn't really know the situation. They are just playing tennis there. Uh, After he had got to the office, he called the youth pastor, said, you can come here to the church now, pack your office up, and leave. You're done here. I don't want to know excuses. I don't want to know reasons. That's unacceptable. They had this policy in place. Now, I tried to verify the story. I was unable to. But it's a good story, so I had to share it anyways. And I can see it happening. But if that's the practice, this is for your sake, but it's also to to protect your marriage, to protect your wife. Uh, Denny Burke, on his blog, recently gave 10 thoughts on the Billy Graham rule Um, after a recent news story just came up about um, a a Christian politician uh, practicing this and just getting slammed in the media for it. Um, I printed out uh, a dozen copies or so, put them on the Welcome Center in the back if you want to grab one on your way just to see some of the wisdom and what that that rule is. But as we cover adultery, we might be tempted to think this is something outside of myself. Maybe at this point you're saying, I, I don't even know what that term means. When I think of adultery, I think of adulting. Well, it's, it's not adulting, right? Or you see the t-shirts like, I can't adult today. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about adults or being unfaithful to your spouse, right? to committing sexual sin. Say, well, I haven't done that. Well, Scripture doesn't let us off the hook. Remember, this goes deeper than what we might initially believe. And even this 
first part of commandment seven, we're still focused on the narrow aspect of things. Uh, We're staying in lane. Uh, Next week, we're going to get a little crazy, go all over the place and explore some of these avenues and how they relate to the Christian life. But today, we're staying in our lane, trying to, and we're driving ahead, looking at the narrow aspect of things. But Jesus doesn't let us try to get ourselves off the hook on this one. Because Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. Listen to what it says. If, if you want to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30, uh, please do. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, this is Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount, so he's going over the Ten Commandments. He's going over the law, and he's giving us the heart of the meaning. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let me say that again. But everyone, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's already happened. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. This is Jesus taking the gloves off. Take that eye, pitch it, off, pitch it out. Like You don't want it. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. Jesus isn't pulling any punches. He says it's better for us to lose a hand or an eye than to be lost because of this sin. Adultery starts in the heart. This doesn't mean that we work our way to heaven by resisting sinning, but it does mean that ongoing habitual sin and feeding that sin is an indicator that we don't belong to Jesus. He uses the language of lust. To lust is to long for, to desire, to set our heart upon something. In this case, it's disordered passion. Disordered passion. Lust is committing adultery in our heart. We have to be careful here. He doesn't say the two are identical. Committing adultery, the act of adultery, has much longer lasting consequences. There are many consequences attached to that that might not be as apparent with something like lust. He's saying it's committing adultery in your heart. The reason I say that is because sometimes you hear teenagers say this, you hear other people say this, well, I've lusted for somebody, so what's the difference between doing that and just doing the whole thing? Jesus says they're the same. No, Jesus says that's committing it in your heart. He says that's where it starts. And as you feed that, it develops and grows into more and more. So what does this look like? What does this lustful intent look like in real life? I've shared before uh, multiple times that um, growing up, we were a car family. We love cars. But something that, you, if you're around cars a lot, there's something that you kind of develop. Right? It's kind of like a car radar, like a cardar. Right? So you'll be driving down the road, and the cardar will start going off. Right? 
you'll notice a nice car in the distance, maybe in the other lane of a highway, and you'll kind of look over at it, right? And, and, and you, you, you kind of, you, all you have to do, you can go down the highway 80 miles an hour, well, 70 miles an hour uh, down the highway, and, you know, there's behind, a tuck behind a barn, there's like a car, and you're flying, you're like, what was that? Right? And, and so you kind of get a momentary glance, and then, like, your whole body shifts, and, like, you're engaged, Right? And not only are you engaged, but it's starting to, to well up within you different facts about that car. Right? And so whoever's sitting next to you, Ashley, right, she's getting all these facts that she doesn't care about. But I'm telling her right, like, how lucky we are to be able to see that car behind that barn right there. But here's the thing, when we're driving down the highway, the first initial kind of like, I, I see it kind of out of the corner of my eye, or maybe I just see it over here, that's not a big deal. The big deal is when I start doing this, right? That second look, that second look when I start longing for, when I start directing my entire intention towards, and then we start to like drift, <laughs> Ashley's like, um, you're, you're, you're going off the road a little bit, Ashley, did you see that car? Here's how we can notice lust, just that second look. It's granting our heart, is our, is our heart desiring that second look and it's like giving into that second look. Is it looking? It's long, it's leaning in towards. When you take the second look, that's when the danger starts to come. Start to feed it. Start to fantasize. And if in case you didn't catch the transition, now I'm talking about lust again, not cars. But can't we see the similarity? It's dangerous. In fact, when Scripture talks about adultery, when Scripture talks about lust, when it talks about sexual sin, it uses different vocabulary. Think about even the story of of Joseph when he's encountering sin. So often when we, when we talk about sin, we talk about battle, we talk about fight, talk about going to war. But in sexual sin, it's much more about flight than it is about fight. It's much more about getting away from the scenario, getting away from the situation. Joseph is, is tempted, and, and he has a decision to make. I mean, think about Joseph being tempted by his boss's wife. Like, this is like the, if you're going to cave into sin, this might be the situation. You feel deserted. You're away from your family. You're away from people who worship the same God you do. It's in secret. You might feel abandoned by God. What's the purpose of being faithful? And yet, what does Joseph do? He scoots on out of there. And what do we see in the New Testament? 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee sexual immorality. Flee. Run away. Why? Because every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. There's, there's something different here. The, the whole body is engaged. Run away. Flee sexual sin and opportunity for sin. Get out of there. 
Here's the truth, though. Often flee comes with temporary consequences in the moment. You look weird. You make the situation awkward. But doesn't that reflect what we talked about before? Is you dying to yourself, dying to what makes you look good, being willing to look strange to the world in the moment for the good of others and the glory of God for the long haul. Being willing to look strange to the world in the moment for the good of others and the glory of God in the long haul. Flee also means staying away from scenarios that might lead to sin in this area. It implies wisdom with online decisions. If you struggled with pornography in the past, it means putting filters on your devices. That's probably wise practice anyways. Again, even this means facing initial awkwardness for lasting victory. It often means having others hold you accountable. It requires humility, dying to ourselves. Dying to our pride. How many of us are unwilling to fight sin in our life because of the initial hiccups, the initial awkwardness, what that might mean? Another thing, confessing lust to the Lord. One way that lust in any sin loses its power is by confessing it to the Lord. God often graciously helps us see and identify things quicker when they are brought to the light by confessing them to him in prayer. If you do not have regular times where you confess sin to the Lord in prayer, make it your daily or your weekly goal. Confess regularly sin before the Lord. It's hard to escape this scope of this sin. I would say this, if you've fallen into this sin, if you shattered the pieces that God has designed, there's hope. There is one who has power to bring everything back into place. There is one who is making all things new. It's dangerous to think that God doesn't care about our sex lives. That he doesn't care that we can, I, I did this, but God loves me. It doesn't really matter. It's dangerous. But it's also dangerous to believe that any of our sins are beyond the forgiveness of the Lord. In Scripture, we have a specific scenario where Jesus talks to a Samaritan woman who had sexual sin. He told her where she could find living water. She walked away changed. She not only encountered Jesus herself, but became a mighty tool in God's plan to save others. If you are in this room brokenhearted over sin, we can capture the beauty in the words that we started with. When we understand the gravity of our sin, we can say, we have sinned, we have screwed up, but Jesus still loves us. Praise God that our acceptance isn't dependent upon our performance, but on his grace. Let's continue to strive for faithfulness out of the victory he has already purchased. What a beautiful thing. Let's pray.
Dear Father, we fall so short of your standard, and yet you continue to shower love and grace upon us. Allow us to be a church that reflects to the world Jesus Christ and the church by the way that husbands treat their wives, by the way that wives submit to their husbands. God, allow this to be a picture of who you are. God, help us to remain pure in an impure world, not for ourselves, not to lift ourselves up, but to reflect the God who is holy. God, we desire you. We desire to live for you. And we thank you that our Christian lives are not dependent on us, but have been secured in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.